Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Uh, some of you may not have received the handout on your way in that has uh, some of the questions that will be going on in our sermon. So if you'd like one, uh, Benji here will be handing out some handouts. Yeah, just go ahead and raise your hand if you need one. For future reference, if you walk in and you don't get one, there's usually extra copies uh, on the bar there. But, uh, It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, I'm glad to be back. Missed you, missed gathering with you last week. But I'm excited about what God has for us this morning in his word. We're in 1 Samuel. This morning covering 1 Samuel chapter 4. And if you've been listening or following along to the sermons, uh, this is our fourth week through 1 Samuel. And the first and third weeks have been uh, what you could say a little more uplifting, right? The first week, Will introduced a series and he looked at uh, the call of, like, the, the promise of Samuel to his parents and the praise of Hannah when she receives the news and she conceives and bears a son. And we looked at that great prayer that she has. And then I got to deliver 1 Samuel 2, which was pronunciation of judgment on Eli and his household. And then last week, Tim Howe came in 1 Samuel 3. We looked at the call of Samuel and how uh, hearing God's voice and responding to God's call and now we look again at judgment. So the, the four chapters have kind of served as, as, as contrasting one another, where two and four are really judgments uh, and, and not chapters that go so well for Eli and his household and the Israelites as a whole. So if you haven't yet, uh, grab your copy of, of the scriptures and open with me to 1 Samuel 4. We're going to be looking this, this morning at 1 Samuel 4 in its entirety, verses 1 through 22. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, 1 Samuel is, First uh, and Second Samuel come right after uh, a group of scriptures called the, the Law, the, the Torah, the first five books, and then there's Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and then there's 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is right before 2 Samuel, uh, if you're looking in your Bibles, so I thought more people would laugh at that, but okay. <laughs> One of those mornings, I guess. Here we go. Uh, and, and let me draw your attention to a, to a section of verses that uh, Tim Howe last week preached on. Uh, and this, what we see this week, is kind of the coming into fruition of those verses. So 1 Samuel 3, verses 11 through 14. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Okay, so this is, the, this is the prophecy, the promise that God spoke through Samuel that is about to come into fruition here in, in chapter 4. So the last little bits of chapter 3 describe Samuel growing up, uh, the Lord being with him, uh, the Lord revealing himself to him, and then... Chapter 4, verse 1 kind of serves as that transition between verse, chapter 3 and chapter 4. In fact, some translations even include that in chapter 3, but uh, in the ESV, it's the very beginning of chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Okay, so that, this is where we're going now. That, that word 
that Samuel spoke is about to come into place. So before we get into the passage, uh, and now that we've kind of briefly recapped where we've come so far, let me kind of lay before you the plan of the message this morning, where I'd like to go. Uh, If you haven't gathered with us before, we have three questions that are provided in the handout that we go over as a way of framing our sermons and, and providing a tool or resource to you to use as you study God's Word, especially the Old Testament, how to make sense of the passage. So what I'd like to do this morning is walk through the passage, read through it, provide some commentary and some context on what's going down, and then answer those three questions, and then we'll just sing and get out of here. Sounds like a good plan? Okay, I hope so. That's the only plan I have. So, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now, if you have a Bible in the back, a Bible in the back of your Bible, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, it might be helpful to turn there to see what area of the territory the Philistines are now in. Um, the Philistines are a people that we have seen earlier in the scriptures when we studied the book of Judges. The Philistines were enemies of Israel. They oppressed Israel. Uh, they migrated to the coastline and they started taking Israel's land. So the fact that they are described as camping at Aphek shows that they have pushed far north and are coming into the central territory of Israel. So if you can imagine Israel, you have the Mediterranean Sea here, you have the land of Israel, the central territory would be right in this middle here, and this is where the Philistines are coming out towards. They migrated north from the coastline, they're coming in to attack Israel in the central lands, and this just means that things are not going well for the people of Israel. They haven't been able to fight off their enemies, the enemies are coming into the heartland of the Israelites, Shiloh, was kind of the religious spiritual center of Israel, and Ebenezer is only about 20 miles west of Shiloh. So you can imagine, they're coming in on the Israel territory, and, and things are not looking good, and Aphek was just west of Ebenezer across a plain. So, and the Philistines, verse 2, the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's almost as if the Israelites are just assuming that they would have won. Why, is the Lord, why did the Lord defeat us? Why didn't we get this victory? And then they say this in, in verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, again, before we go through the passage, I think there's some history and some context that might be helpful in explaining the significance of this, this, this piece, the Ark of the Covenant, especially if you're unfamiliar with the story of the Bible and the story of, of Exodus for the Israelites. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was an important object in the life of Israel. It, it was described in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. If you want to look uh, more about that or, or read more later this week, you can find it in Exodus 25. The Ark of the Covenant was basically a wood box that was covered with gold. It was sort of like a chest that had a lid, and inside the chest was two stone tablets that had been written by God that served as the Ten Commandments. This was, this was the covenant uh, that God had made with the people of Israel. This, this box was about four feet long, two feet high, and two feet wide. So you can imagine that. It had on the bottom, the four legs, were four gold rings. And in between those two rings slid wood poles that were overlaid with gold that they would use to carry this ark uh, when they were journeying in the wilderness. 
And when they camped at Shiloh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was set in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It was a very sacred place, the place where the, the presence of God was, was uh, in real sense. Uh, only the Israelites could go there once a year, the high priest, and he had to go through these rituals to make sure that he was properly clean and wouldn't essentially be annihilated in the presence of God because God's presence is so holy. And inside this ark symbolized the, the, the stone tablets that were called the covenant. So when it says the ark of the covenant, that's what this is a reference to. And, and a covenant, simply put, is, is an agreement with specific obligations between two parties. So the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the covenant that God had made with his people, that God said to the people of Israel, I will be your God. I will be with you. I will protect you. I will make you flourish and prosper if you obey me. So it's essentially the terms of the covenant. And in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, Moses lists certain blessings and curses of the covenant. In other words, if the people of Israel obeyed God, good things would happen. If they rebelled against God, if they were unfaithful to the covenant, cursings would happen. This was listed out very clearly. The people would have known what was happening. And and the fact, I think, starting in verse 3, that this term, Ark of the Covenant, is used four times in three verses, I think is the narrative's way of trying to cue us in on this reality to show us uh, the obligations of this covenant and show us that the Israelites had really failed to keep their part of the covenant, their obligations, yet they didn't even think to do some self-reflection, to pray and seek God, to confess of their sin. And, and again, I think this is shown to show the, the great responsibility that Israel had as God's people to live in covenant relationship with him. And up to this point in, in 1 Samuel 4, the Israelites had been very unfaithful. Remember the period of the judges. Not a good time for the people of Israel. Remember, in the beginning of Samuel, the, the priest thinks that that there's a drunk woman praying. I mean, that, this seems to be like a common experience that they were just drunk people that were gathering at the temple. Eli's sons were described as wicked, worthless men. They were sleeping with people outside of the temple. They were taking more of the food offerings than they should have. They were taking the fat portion, which was the Lord's portion reserved for him, for themselves. Right? So, and this is what the priests are doing. So this is not a good time in, in the life of Israel. But instead of praying and, and calling out to God and, and seeking him... In the midst of all this evil, instead they seem to treat this Ark of the Covenant as a sort of lucky charm, a thing that will just guarantee their victory regardless of their faithfulness or their, their faithfulness, their, the fact that they had not kept up with the covenant. You see this even in the way that they describe it uh, in verse 3. They say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us. See how you're even referring to the ark. It's no longer uh, revered as holy, and this is God's covenant, God's presence. God is doing this. The, the ark has become some sort of lucky charm. It seems like they've been more influenced by the pagan nations around them, that if they have this idol or if they have this thing, then they can manipulate God and coerce them into getting what they want. This problem assumes, and the elders assume, that their covenant faithfulness didn't have any regard or any... Uh, weight in God's presence with them and his guarantee of victory on their behalf. So it seems like they try to force God's hand, they use God, they treat him as their servant to get what they want. They treat him very lightly and disrespectfully. And you can see that even further, 
the people that are described as going with the ark of God are our boys Hophni and Phinehas, who just a couple chapters earlier are described as worthless, wicked men. Because this is how lightly they're treating this covenant, how lightly they're disregarding God and his honor and his glory. But they seem unaware of this. They seem unaware of their rebellion in regards to this. And they're super excited that the ark has come. So the people sent to Shiloh and they brought the ark there, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the ark of the covenant. And as soon as the ark of the covenant came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Israelites have found new confidence. Now we have the ark. Certainly God's going to bring us victory. We got this. Let's shout for joy. The earth is going to shake because of how excited we are about this. Verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. I think the narrator is doing a couple things here. One, he's maybe making fun or mocking the Philistines' ignorance of reality and what really happened. We know that God did not strike the Egyptians in the wilderness. God struck the Egyptians with the plagues in Egypt. The narrator also seems to be making a mock at their understanding of a one monotheistic God. As they say, they, they say a God has come into the camp on the one hand, but then they say, woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Right, so these Philistines don't know, and they're un- ignorant of the one true God of Israel. Sadly, uh, it doesn't seem like the Israelites know their God that much better. The Philistines themselves muster their strength. They try to instill courage in themselves. They say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men and fight. Seems to be more motivated out of fear. Like, hey, we've imprisoned these guys. These guys have been our slaves. We don't want to be their slaves. So let's fight and give this all we got. And then simply put in verse 10, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled. Every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the, ark of the, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the phrase there, every, every man to his home, literally was every man to his own tent. It was a way of talking about that because the army had been defeated, the army essentially was disbanded, they're done, it's over. And not only are 30,000 soldiers slaughtered, but the ark is captured. And the prophecy that was made from the man of God to Eli about both of his sons dying on the same day is accomplished and fulfilled. The story then shifts gears a little bit. The, the context shifts to back to Shiloh, where we describe that a man of Benjamin is running from the battle line and comes to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. So it was just a, a cultural way of describing mourning. So it would be similar to how we wear black to a funeral. It was a, it was a posture and an outfit of mourning. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told all the news, all the city cried out. And Eli heard the sound of the outcry and said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. 
So if you can picture with me, what's happening is Eli is sitting by the gate on the road. The, the man is coming in from battle, closed, closed torn, dirt on his head. He's running past. I don't know why Eli is sitting watching the road because he can't see. This man runs by, tells the city the news of what has happened. And you can imagine a, a cry, lament is happening that the ark has been captured, that 30,000 people have died. Eli hears his outcry coming, and therefore the messenger comes back out and tells Eli what has gone down. Verse 16, the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? And he brought the news, and he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the, the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, has been captured. Talk about a bear of bad news, right? Triple whammy. Israel's been slaughtered. Both of your sons are dead. Ark is gone. Verse 18, and as soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate. And his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Interesting enough, it's a similar way that the narrator described judges when they died, kind of similar wrapping up of their life. And if that's not sad enough, the story shifts again to Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas. It says in verse 19, Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, don't be afraid, you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark has been captured. Notice the repetition, signaling the the importance of of what has just happened. Pretty depressing story. That's where chapter 4 ends. Israelites slaughtered, ark gone. Eli hears the news of the ark gone. He falls over backward on his chair, lands and breaks his neck. Uh, the narrator said that he was old and heavy. That's important. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, Phineas's wife, pregnant, about to give birth. Maybe because of the news, she goes into premature delivery because of shock. She delivers this baby and dies. But maybe kind of as a final breath, she says his name will be Ichabod, which literally means no glory. So this is a sad way of ending the story. Death. There's a lot of death here. She says, the glory has departed from Israel. Glory, in a sense, signals or points to the very presence of God. We talked about earlier, the presence of the God of Israel is conceived of as his glory. So it says, the glory has departed. She's saying the Lord has left us, abandoned us, departed from us. So now that we've looked at that text, let's, let's look at those questions and seek to make sense of this. What does this story teach us about God? and how he relates to his people, what characters, traits of God is, is highlighted in this passage, how does this story connect with the larger story of the Bible, and, and how does this story apply to our life, right? Like, what does it matter? 
that a bunch of people got killed. Eli dies because he breaks his neck. Hophni and Phinehas die. Eli's daughter-in-law dies. So what? What does that have to do with my life right now? Des Moines, 2019, Sunday, September 22nd. The 22nd? Yeah. Number one, let's look at question one. What does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? I think there's two truths that I want to highlight. One might be a little more of a subpoint, although I think it's equally important to, to mention. Number one, God's word always comes true. We see that right in the beginning. The word of Samuel is coming to all Israel. The word of Samuel was, something is about to happen. I'm about to punish this household of Eli, and it happens. That might be simple and obvious to see, but it's important for us to know God's word is trustworthy. It's true. God is faithful to his word and to his promises. What he says, he will accomplish. Two things happen that are fulfilled. One, the, the man that's described as the man of God that comes to Eli uh, with this prophecy that both of your sons will die on the same day, that comes, that's accomplished. The second prophecy comes from Samuel, from God saying, I will punish the house of Eli. All these sins, the way that they have blasphemed me will not go unpunished. Both of those happen in this story. But the second truth that I think uh, is more prevalent and more central in this story is that God takes his glory seriously. God is ultimately concerned about the display and the preservation of his glory, and he will not let it be dishonored, maligned, or scorned. He will punish those who take his glory, his holiness, his worth, his weight lightly. So in this story, we see that the people of Israel had failed to approach God with honor and respect. They have failed to live as his people in obedience and faithfulness to the covenant. The elders, they didn't wait for a response from God. They didn't seek God into why maybe he had defeated them for the Philistines. They simply try to press his hand, uh, force him to respond or manipulate him to get what they want by bringing the Ark of the Covenant. And this story shows us that God is not manipulated or forced to do things. He's not some genie in a bottle that we can rub and coerce and get him to do what we want. It's a false kind of pagan viewpoint that the Israelites had put onto God as the one true God of Israel. One, one commentator said it like this, the people of Israel in the story are treating God as a waiter in a restaurant. He's not very active. He's not at their table eating with them. Uh, and like a waiter is treated, they have ignored God. They have only called on him when they wanted something. They have taken him lightly without honor and respect. So God's people do not relate to him as if he's some sort of lucky charm or some genie in a bottle or some guaranteed success for blessing. And, and similar to this, this idea and this viewpoint that the Israelites had, this is still, I think, very prevalent uh, among quote-unquote Christians and even proclaimed from pulpits, such things as if you just do this, God will bless you, like in what's called the so-called prosperity gospel. Well, if you just give that televangelist $1,000, God will bless you with a new car. Just garbage. It's pagan viewpoints about God that he's some sort of manipulated force that you can get him to do what you want. Remember that I said, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, uh, especially that phrase, Eli was old and heavy, is important because that heaviness uh, is a theme that has been traced through the story so far. The word for heavy is a word that's very similar for the word glory or weight in the Hebrew scriptures. So when you say God is glorious, 
He's weighty. God's glory, his weight, his worth. So the fact that the narrator mentions that he was heavy shows that here's a man, Eli, who didn't take God's glory heavily, right? He treated God lightly. We know this because he blasphemed God by taking his, God's portion of the sacrifice, the fat offering. So he took God's glory lightly and he fattened himself on what should have gone to God. This fatness caused him to be heavy. And this heaviness, as he fell back, is what broke his neck. So you see, it's, it's kind of an interesting, what the narrator is doing here in the original language, we see, uh, about the heaviness. When people take God's glory lightly, they're crushed by it. Now, that's, that's strong, but that's the reality of the scriptures. God's glory, his weight, is he's deserving of all glory, all honor. He's not something to be taken lightly. And when we take God lightly and we disobey him, we treat him with contempt, we we ignore his commands or rebel against him, there are consequences that go along with that. And this story shows us that, that reality, that truth. God takes his glory seriously. The story teaches us that God's people are not to take God lightly. They're not to use him or treat him for their own self-serving means. As God is the supreme, glorious being, he is infinitely worthy and weight, and those who take God lightly are punished. So that's, I think, the main truth that we see in this passage. Secondly, we look at that second question. How does this story connect to the Bible's larger story, our meta-narrative? And, and when we think about this truth, this is a truth that's seen all throughout the scriptures. God's people taking him lightly, disregarding him, ignoring him, not being faithful to the covenant. All the way from Adam and Eve throughout the time of the judges, continuing into the time of the kings and to the time of the prophets, God's people are not good at doing this. They, they disregard God. They treat him lightly. They're constantly looking to other things or other people for identity, our worth, our success, our value, are getting what they want. Paul, in fact, writes in his letter to the Romans that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory, the weight of God. We have failed to live as God has required. We, are, we have treated, not treated God as he deserves to be treated. And what this story points to is our need for help, deliverance, salvation. This story points to our need for Jesus Christ. And this story shows us that Jesus was not just a nice guy who taught us how to live and to be a good person. He wasn't just this guy who came in with an eightfold truth system on, on how to live peacefully. Jesus came because without Jesus, there is no hope for humanity. All humanity sits condemned and in just righteous place to be condemned forever and sent away from God because all have fallen short of his glory. God cannot tolerate sin and unholiness and unrighteousness in his presence. It'll literally be obliterated. So how can God, the, the just, righteous, holy God, be with people? Only through Jesus. Only through someone becoming the righteousness of God and suffering in our place, taking our punishment, our rebellion, our unfaithfulness on himself and dying in our place. This story points to the great need that we have, that Jesus is our only hope. And, and friends, although in this story, the people of God try to coerce God and try to call him and bring him to where they are to get what they want, in the gospel, Jesus comes on his own behalf. 
In the gospel, Jesus comes as a free, sovereign act of grace, not because anyone was calling for him to come, but because God sent him and loved us to send his son to die on the cross on our behalf. Regardless of our disobedience and rebellion, Jesus came as a great act of love for God's people. His name is called Emmanuel, God with us. He's not coerced or called or we don't do certain things to obtain his presence. He comes, he pursues, he comes down. That's the, that's the Jesus of the gospel that this story points us towards. Amen? Jesus came to establish a new covenant, a covenant that wasn't based on human merit or action, but on grace through faith. A covenant that didn't include blessings or curses, but grace. Jesus came to take the punishment for sinners who have taken God lightly. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. He was the great, the greatest offering once and for all. His body was broken on the cross and, and all who trust in him, in his act, the person and work of Jesus on the cross can trust there is no condemnation, no curse. This is a radically different covenant, isn't it? It's not based on our obedience. It's based on Jesus's obedience. It's perfect. That's been given to us. He has dealt with us and given us what, us what we don't deserve and given to Jesus what we deserved. Jesus and the cross is proof that God is with us and for us, that he will never leave us, not because of anything we've done, but simply because of his grace. In this story, the people of God, Eli's wicked sons, Eli, they get what they deserve. And this story should show us that in the gospel, we are so blessed and graced, aren't we? That we didn't get what we deserved. We, like Eli, like his worthless sons, have rebelled and have been unfaithful to God. Yet God has put and counted our unfaithfulness to Jesus. So in, in light of that story and what this teaches us about God and how Jesus has taken our place, what warning or encouragement does this story offer? Now, if, if, if we can trace this from, from the beginning to now, simply put, friends, let's not take God's glory lightly. And let's look at our actions and, and, and see our actions as an invitation to examine our hearts examine what we're really believing in and trusting in and how we're treating God. From the reality is, is that you will worship and revere God, the Lord of hosts, the sovereign one. You will submit to him and worship him forever or you will rebel against him and, and be cast away forever. Church, if we believe in this gospel of grace that Jesus is and God is glorious and supreme, and his, his weight meant something. It meant something so much that Jesus died. Like he, he died, he came and died for the glory of God. And if we really believe that, we will not take God's glory willy-nilly. We will not believe the gospel as, as simply a, a ticket to heaven, and we get to live and do what we want. We will live and think and relate to God as he truly is, glorious, not someone to be taken lightly. How does the way that we live, our thoughts, our actions, our affections reveal how much we really believe this? 
Do we live with a kind of submissive awe, a reverent fear, a desire to seek God's glory above all else or to take him seriously enough to feel it and live as if he really is the most weighty thing in our life? I think this story is an invitation for us to consider that. Do not take God's glory lightly. Reflect upon your actions. Do what the Israelites did not do in this passage. Seek God and come to him with your sins and seek to repent in front of him in his presence. Right, if we think about someone who takes something lightly, for example, a student, they take school lightly. Maybe they, they don't turn in homework. They skip class or they show up late. They don't really care what kind of grades they get. They had this lackadaisical, oh, it doesn't matter. Well, you say that student is taking school lightly. What about, think about a, a husband and a wife or, or any kind of relationship between a man and a woman. Maybe they don't talk to each other, or they don't spend time together. They don't even seem to be, want to be together. Maybe they, they start seeing other people, and they don't tell. They're unfaithful. You might say that that person is, is taking that relationship lightly, right? What does our thoughts, our time commitments, our attitude towards God, what does that show about the way that we view God? Do we take God lightly? Are we content with We'll read my Bible a little bit a day, pray three times a day before my meals, and yep, I'm a good Christian. Do we view God as this kind of genie, this waiter who exists to, he's not really involved in our life, right? We just call him over when we need him. Maybe we'll tip him a little bit. He's not our center. He's not our all. We don't think about him. We don't want to spend time on his word. We don't want to be with his people. Those are just kind of like add-ons. It's not it. Friends, I think this passage calls us to consider it those and come before God and ask him for a new heart. We have the Holy Spirit in us if we are truly his people. The spirit who wants to change us and convict us and transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. So lay your heart before him, your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes, and say, God, show me, change me. I want to live a life that is not taking you lightly, that is glorifying you in all that I do. And I want to do this because you didn't, you didn't take your glory and your holiness lightly. Father, help my heart to be in line with yours and in line with the truths of the gospel. Amen? And as we do this and as we reflect and we think, let us respond in confident joy. Let's make this ground shake. Not because we kind of have an ignorant belief. Well, read my Bible, took some communion, so God's with me. No, right? We have Jesus. God is for us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. We are not condemned in his presence. Jesus is with us. He has promised never to leave us. He is with us always. And let's sing with that confident hope, Jesus, you are for me. You are with me. I want to live for your glory, for your honor, for your praise now and increasingly throughout my life. Would you be the glory and honor in your son's name? Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for taking you lightly, for treating you as a server, as a waiter, as a genie in a bottle. Father, forgive us when our prayer lives so often just look like simple wishes and requests. 
and there is not reverent fear and awe at your name and your power and your majesty. Father, you alone are glorious. Father, there's nothing that's more worthy of our praise and our affections and our thoughts. Father, may you be glorified. You are supreme. Jesus, be lifted up in this church. Father, would you be praised now as, as our hearts are in line with our words? May we really believe what we say. Father, thank you for being so gracious and merciful to us. That as we often turn our eyes away from other things, from you to other things, as we are so unfaithful to your grace, as we seek to take matters into our own hands and trust in our righteousness and our acts and the things that we do, Father, we may lay those down at the feet of the cross and praise you for what you have done. Father, you are not coerced. You are not manipulated. You are the creator and the sustainer of all things. So, Father, may we live as your people in humility and in joy that we are yours and that you have good things for us, that you are our all. And Father, would our thoughts, our time, our resources, our affections, would they be in line with what you may have for us, for your glory. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.